as, as I was preparing this week, I was, and, and especially in light of, of what we're going to talk about this morning in Genesis 24, I, I remember when I was trying to decide where I should go to college, and I was a mess. I was an utter mess. I had been, it was my senior year of high school, um, I had been a Christian for about a year and a half, and I did not know as a Christian how I should handle such a big, in my mind, big decision. Uh, asking myself questions like, what if, I made, what if I make the wrong choice? What if I didn't, what if I miss God's will for my life? Uh, going to the wrong school could really, I mean, it could really mess up the trajectory that God wants me to go on. I was having like a, essentially I was having an existential crisis as I was trying to think through where I should go to college. Um, I was struggling. I didn't, I was praying for a direction from God. I didn't know what I should do, but I wasn't hearing him. I wasn't getting some sign in the heavens. I didn't hear some booming voice telling me this is where you should go, right? None of that was happening. And I remember uh, I was with a friend sitting in my car, and I shared with him my angst, my anxiety, not knowing what to do. He was a Christian brother, and he kindly said to me, he said, Ben, I think you just need to, like, calm down and just make a decision. And you just need to trust that God is more than capable of steering you in the right direction whatever you decide. Like, he can shut doors. He can open doors. And I remember, as soon as he said this, like, I, I, I like, I physically, like, I, I, I literally got mad. I was like, what? Like, I, no, like, I have to figure this out. Like, I can't, I can't just, like, trust God. My immaturity revealed two things, at least two things. It revealed a lot. But it revealed at least two things. One, it revealed that I didn't trust that God faithfully provides for his kids. I didn't trust that God provides faithfully for his children. And then because of that, I didn't, I just, I blatantly just didn't trust God with my future, with my decisions, with the unknown. And I think for many of us this morning, though your circumstances might be different, uh, though maybe you might this morning be in a place of trying to make a decision and having an existential crisis, um, I think most of us who are Christians can, this morning, at least I hope, can relate to, to my experience when I was trying, trying to decide where to go to college. Um, in, in, in various ways, I think that we all forget that God faithfully provides for his people. And then in response to that reality and to that truth, that God actually calls us to trust him. And that's, that's essentially our big idea this morning. It, it should be on the screen. It's that God faithfully provides for his people. So, trust him. God faithfully provides for his people. And our response should be to trust him. And in Genesis 24, uh, my argument this morning is that Genesis 24 kind of revolves around this, these two ideas. God faithfully providing for his people and then the ways that we should trust him in light of that. And the way that Genesis 24 picks up this idea is it picks it up like it's a diamond. 
And if you've ever looked at a diamond, you can twist the diamond around and look at all the different facets of the diamond. And so the, the whole chapter takes up this idea and spins it around like a diamond. And it looks at it intensely from different angles with different perspectives. And so this morning as we walk through our text, we're going to look at this big idea three times through three characters and explore it with a slightly different focus each time. And the two questions that we're going to be answering are, what does God's faithfulness look like? And what does it look like for God's people to trust him? What does God's faithfulness look like? And what does it look for God's people? how does it look for God's people to trust him? And so the three characters that we're going to walk through and answering those two questions are Abraham, Abraham's servant, and Abraham's daughter-in-law, which is Rebecca. So we're going to start off in verses 1 through 9. You can follow along as I read. It says this, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. They really drill it in there. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of, of, of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to, and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So in verse 1, this chapter starts off cueing us in to this overarching idea, this, this undertone of, of everything that's happened in the life of Abraham up till now, that God has blessed Abraham. He's blessed his life. Abraham can look back and he can sing the song that we just sang, Oh God, our help in ages past. You've been with me. God has helped him. He's blessed him. Abraham's life was full at this point. And all the promises that God gave to Abraham, including promises about blessing, about making a great nation out of him, which meant giving him offspring and giving him land, they've all started to, to in some way, shape, or form, come to fruition in Abraham's life. And specifically, they came to fruition through the birth of Isaac, his son. And so... The problem is, is that, as our text says, Abraham was old and well advanced in years. Abraham's not getting any younger, and the show must go on. Right? Isaac needs to get married and continue this family business of having kids. And so that the nation would come that God promised to Abraham. And so Abraham, as, as an elderly man, this is his concern at the end of his life. My son has to get married. So Abraham approaches his head servant in his house and he says, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is go back to my hometown, to my family, and find my son a wife. And specifically notice that Abraham says, this is because Abraham, uh, Isaac can't marry a Canaanite. See, Abraham at this point was dwelling in the promised land, the land that God had promised to him, and the natives of that land were the Canaanites. 
They were wicked and corrupt people. And so this is why Abraham says, I want you to go back to my family and find a wife there for my son Isaac. And so then in verse 5, we see the, ser- the servant responds like you would expect. Uh, all right, Abraham, no problem. Uh, just one thing, though. Why would any woman want to come all the way here to this foreign land to marry somebody that she doesn't know? Like, what if she doesn't want to come? Should I take Isaac back to your homeland, to your hometown, and get him hitched up there? Like, what, what, how should I do this? And Abraham, as we keep reading, he says, no. So not only does Abraham not want his son to marry a Canaanite, but he also doesn't want his son to leave the land that God promised him. And so you can see the servant has these legitimate concerns and questions. Wait, wait, wait. I'm going to go travel for months on end back to your hometown and try to find somebody from your family to bring to Isaac. Like, bro, how's this going to work out? I, like, this sounds pretty hard. And notice what Abraham says in verse 7. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred. So God took me from my hometown. And he spoke to me and he swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. So Abraham's talking about these promises. God has worked in my life. God has blessed my life. He's done all these things to me. He's made promises to me. So in light of that, look what he says. He, God, will send his angel before you. My servant, Abraham says, you're missing one thing. God's going to go with you. You're not alone on this mission that I'm sending you on. In other words, even though Abraham does not know how this situation is going to work itself out, he doesn't have exact answers for the servants. He doesn't know how the servant's going to find the wife or if the woman he finds will even want to come. Abraham sees and remembers God's provisions for him in the past, and so he trusts that God will not fail him in the future. My angel's going to go before you. The angel of the Lord's going to go before you. And, and, and then in verse 8, it even seems like Abraham basically says, and you know what, even if it doesn't work out this time, it's okay. Like God's got some plan, I think is the implicit statement underneath verse 8. So remember I said as we walk through these characters, we're, going to, we're asking two questions, right? We're asking the question, what does God's faithfulness look like? And then what does trust in God look like? And here we see in, in, in Abraham, we see that God's faithful provision for his people gives confidence. It gives confidence to his people. God's faithful provision for his people gives confidence to his people. Right? God's past actions in our lives, in the lives of his people, actually serve to assure us that God will continue to provide for us in the future. God's faithfulness gives us confidence to trust him more. For those who, who, who don't know, um, my, my wife and I, Emily, she's in the back, uh, we were missionaries in Croatia for about nine years. And after being that, so we moved over, we were young, we moved over there in 2011, um, and for about the first year of our time overseas, uh, we, we, 
we lived in, first we lived in a city, so everything was kind of walking distance, and then we ended up moving to a, a village context, like an Eastern European village, like everybody has chickens, and you, they invite you to pig slaughterings, and like all these different things, all the things that you'd expect in an Eastern European village. And so we could pretty much get around either by foot or by bike. Uh, we didn't really need a car initially. But a year into it, we were starting to feel the fact that we did not own a car. And we started to realize that life and ministry and the things that we were over there to do would actually be helped by us having a car. The one problem was we couldn't afford to buy a car. And so we, we prayed. And uh, we had many of you in this church were supporting us financially and through prayer. Um, and so we, we let our supporters know, and we were praying uh, that God would provide us with a car. And it was shortly after this that um, kind of, it, it was shocking to us, two families uh, who supported us financially sent us, we, we didn't tell people how much we needed to buy a car. Um, two families ended up giving us uh, donations, uh, and it totaled right about the amount that we needed to buy a car. It was a used car. We found out later it didn't have airbags. But God provided for us to, to buy a car. And I remember, we, Emily and I, we, we were shocked. We were shocked not just at the generosity of, of others, but at God's provision for us. Like we prayed and it worked. <laughs> and uh, like I said, we were there nine years. I, I think throughout our nine years there, and even to this day, it's, it's something that sticks out in Emily and I's mind um, as a moment that God really used to teach us a lesson and almost set up our expectations for our time overseas. Um, we, we, we started to, to learn that, that despite us and despite all of our weaknesses and all of our folly, um, God had our back. And that was true our entire time in Croatia. And, it, it, and, and that moment, my, my whole point is that moment was something that we could look back on. And it just, it gave us the sense of confidence toward the future. Like God's got us. He got us then. Like he's going to provide for us in, in whatever way he, he desires in the future. And so I, I know this morning none of you here, as far as I know, are, have been missionaries to foreign countries and don't have a wide network of people that you could just email and say, hey, here's our prayer requests, and you don't have a, a wider network of people who are investing in what you're doing financially. But I do know from talking to many of you that God does provide for all of us in some pretty miraculous ways. It's, God's provision is like the friend who calls you and says that they're praying for a need that you haven't told anybody about. Or it's the, I just got laid off at work and I've been searching for a job for six months and nothing has come up. And then out of the blue, through a contact, through this person, God provides. Or sometimes God provision, God's provision for us looks like God not providing, right? God taking away. God granting a harder season of life to go through, which then afterward you can look back on and see how he grew you. So his non-provision is actually 
his provision. All of this, what we see in Abraham's life, is meant to grant us greater confidence that God, who takes care of us in the past, will take care of us in the future. But God's provision doesn't stop there, right? It doesn't stop with just our daily lives and needs and things that we have. Those are important, right? For, for God's people, if, if you're a Christian this morning, on an even greater level, we see that God's provision for his people concerns our eternal happiness and joy, right? God sent his son to redeem us from sin and death. And then with this in mind, as you read the New Testament, the New Testament makes abundantly clear that if God did not spare his own son in the past, then how will God not freely give all things to you in the future? Right? If Jesus came the first time, will he not come again? God's past faithfulness to send his son at the advent, which we're going to be celebrating as we remember Christmas, as we remember the birth. The first advent cues us up and sets up our expectations for the second advent. When Jesus comes back. The, the, the point is, is that even, if, even though we do not know the future, right? Even though we do not know when Jesus will come back and make all things right. And though we face many uncertainties in this life, what we do know is that God has richly provided for us in so many ways. And ultimately, and most expressly, in sending us his own son. Brothers and sisters, God has proven himself faithful to provide for his people. And his past provisions for us give us confidence to keep trusting him. Well, now we have the second question, right? What about the the character of Abraham's trust? What, What does trust in God look like here? And what we see is, so God's provided in the past. It's giving Abraham this confidence to trust him. So so what does Abraham's confident, confident trust look like? Well, here it looks like active obedience. This is really important to notice, right? Like, so on the one hand, we might be prone to think, well, man, like God did some crazy stuff for Abraham. Like God did all this stuff for him. Like Abraham must think, man, I can just like sit back, I can watch my Netflix, I can do my thing, and like, I don't really have to do anything. Like, God's just going to do it all. Or we might think, oh, maybe Abraham's disobeying. Because like, God here never told Abraham to go get a wife for Isaac. Nowhere does it say to go get a wife for Isaac. Did God say that to him? Right? Like, maybe Abraham needs to get a word from God before he can actually go do this. Otherwise, he's in disobedience. But actually, we see the opposite of both of those. What we see is is a man who trusts God so much, like his confidence is, is so rooted in God, that this actually leads him to take initiative. God's faithfulness toward us actually frees us up to live and do and take risks. Right? God's faithfulness to his people does not produce passivity on the one hand. Like, I'm just not going to do anything because, like, God's going to take care of it all. Like, I don't, like, it's not on me. But it also doesn't paralyze you in fear, thinking, oh, like, what if I make the wrong choice? Like I was. I was paralyzed when I was trying to choose where to go to college. 
When we realize, brothers and sisters, that our destiny is not in our own hands, despite whatever Disney princesses might think, our destiny is not in our own hands. We just sang that it's not in our own hands. When you realize your destiny is not in your hands, man, that is a huge weight lifted off your shoulders. And it actually allows you to become free to live wisely in God's world. I'm not saying that we should do stupid things, illogical things. God gives us wisdom, though, to live in his world wisely and freely, doing his will and his work. And as we do that, we can actually just go, I trust myself. I entrust myself into God's sovereign care. It takes more faith to trust in God's sovereign care for you and his promises than it does to get a word from God about your specific situation. So the implication is, are you single here today? Have you found a a potential suitor? A guy or a girl? Who's a Christian? Like, go on the date. See what happens. Or you're applying for jobs and you have multiple job offers and you don't know which one to choose. Maybe just choose one. See what happens. See, see how God will provide for you. Do you have coworkers, family? We were, a bunch of us were just with family this past week and we're probably going to see them again in about a month. God has actually given us promises that, that there will be people Not all people, but there will be people who respond to the gospel with faith and trust. Share the gospel. See what happens. The promise is not that things are going to work out exactly how we think they will or exactly how we pray that they will. Right? Abraham does not presume here that, that this is going to accomplish what he wants, what he's doing, get, trying, to get Abraham, trying to get Isaac a wife. God not providing for us in the ways that we ask is still God providing just by saying no. But no matter what, we can trust that God's got our back. So we've seen here in Abraham, God's faithful provision gives us confidence and then our response of trust can be active obedience. So as we move on now, the question is, how is God's faithfulness going to look and how is trust going to look in Abraham's servant's life. So let's read as we continue the next few verses. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside of the city well of water, outside of the city by the well of water and the t- at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show, me stead- and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels, Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. 
So we see Abraham's servant goes as Abraham asked him. He doesn't go alone, though, right? The guy's loaded. He's got 10 camels, and he's got all sorts of choice gifts. And part of this was likely he's not just dressing to impress. He's also bringing a bridal price. And so he's going. He's got the 10 camels. He's got these gifts. But notice he gets to this well where he knows women will be gathering at this certain time of day. And we notice that his confidence is not in the gifts, it's not in in the camels, but it's in the Lord. We see that he sits down at this well, and he prays. And there's two important features of this prayer. The, The first thing is that he asks for a specific sign for the right woman for Isaac. So he he asks that it would be that 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 There would be a woman, basically, who would not only give him water to drink, but then would give water to all ten camels, which, by the way, is a ton of water. And he's like, God, if this happens, like, just let that be the one. So he prays that. And then he also says something really particular in verses 12 and 14. The servant frames his request to God to provide, and and he couches it in the context of God's steadfast love. Often in the Old Testament, this word specifically is connected to God's covenant promises and his loyalty to keep those promises. So, so specifically, it, it, God's promises and his faithful provision for his people, according to the servant, are connected to and flow out of God's abundant, steadfast, generous, kind, loving character. So these two things happen in his prayer. Let's see what happens as we read verses 15 through 28. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also. And so they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about all these things. What do we see? What the servant prayed for happened. It, it worked. Rebecca comes, gives him a drink, and gives drink to all the camels. 
And additionally, we find out in verse 16, she's unmarried, she's beautiful, and in verses 15 to 24, we find out that she is from Abraham's family. So she checks, she checks all the boxes. But notice two things. Verse 15 says, Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah. Right? Like before the servant's even done praying, Rebekah is already walking toward him. And then when the servant finds out about all of this, when he sees his prayer answered, when he sees her walking toward, after all this unfolds in verse 27, he says that this is a confirmation of God's steadfast love toward Abraham. What does this tell us? Remember I said there's two questions in each section. What does this tell us about God's faithful provision for his people? Here it tells us two things. The first thing is that God's faithful, faithful provision for his people, it's constant. God is always at work, even before we realize it, for the good of his people. The, the assumption is, as one commentator said, Rebecca had already left the house before the servant had already started praying. God is constantly at work to faithfully provide for his people. But the second thing that it shows us about God's faithful provision for his people is that it's caring. Like, not only is God constantly working for our good as his kids, but God does this because of his deep concern and his care for us. Like, that's just who he is. He's an abundantly kind and loving God. To do otherwise for God would just be unnatural to him. It's, It's not who he is. He is a caring and loving God. So if we think about what I mentioned earlier, that God has provided for his people ultimately and most expressly in sending his son Jesus to redeem, to, to, to redeem us. Here we see why he does that. It's because of his care, his love for his people. But this also means that everything that God orchestrates, which by the way is everything. Everything that God orchestrates, everything that God designs for his people to save them and then conform them into the image of his son flows from the same source of his loving and kind and caring character. So whether it's provision for the forgiveness of sins or whether it's provision for you to financially pay your gas bill, God provides for us out of love for us, so that we might trust him more. God provides for us as his kids, and it flows out of his love, and it's constant. God's provision for his people is constant and caring. Back to Croatia. Now it's 2015, so before it was 2012. Now it's 2015. So Emily and I are there. It's about three years in our time overseas. We were living in, I kind of described this backwoods village. It was called Chakovets. Think like, think Buckley. Okay? So it's, it's, the, it's the Buckley of Croatia. And we are getting ready to head out to, Lord willing, church plant in the capital city of Zagreb. So think going from Buckley to Seattle. Okay? And for better or for worse, Emily and I had decided this in January of 2015. We had prayed a lot, but 
we honestly had, like, we had no idea how this was going to happen. We didn't really know if this was a good idea or not. We weren't going with anybody, and there wasn't anybody there who we were going to start this with yet. So we were a little bit on edge. And we started praying, kept moving forward, weren't sure if this was a good idea. Um, and then a few months before our planned move, so we're still living in, in the Buckley of Croatia, a woman named Ruja, we'll call her Rose, a woman named Rose shows up on a Sunday morning coming from the Seattle of Croatia to the Buckley of Croatia, driving an hour and a half to this backwoods podunk village in the middle of nowhere Croatia to walk into a church that in that culture is basically a cult. Talking to her, we, we found out Rose was not a Christian. And hearing her story and how she even ended up at this church in the middle of nowhere that we were at, we found out that right about the time when Emily and I had decided to move to Zagreb, Rose was on the internet searching for something, and she happened to come across this church's website and started listening to the sermons. She started listening to the archive sermons every day for three months. And she was so intrigued. She, her interest was so piqued. She, you know, she, she had grown up in religious things, but had never heard God's word preached by the pastor of this church that we were at, like the way he was preaching it. And so after three months, it took her three months to, to, to muster up the courage, she finally got in the car on a Sunday morning and drove up. And one of her first questions was, are there any churches in Zagreb, the Seattle of Croatia, that I, can, that I can become a part of? Rose ended up being one of the first people we saw come to faith in Christ and baptized when we moved to Zagreb. My point is, is that this story does not point to Emily and I's faithfulness. We have a big God who is constantly caring for his people. God was moving all of these pieces together, unbeknown to Emily, myself, and Rose, in order to effect Rose's salvation and make her his own. God's provision for his people is constant and caring. So what about trust? Right, we've seen God's provision in this section. What about trust? What does it look like? What we see in the servant are two things. We see prayer, and we see worship. And, and, and I think as, as we kind of start putting the pieces together in this section, we, we realize those are the exact ways that we, we should respond to God's constant provision for us and his caring provision for us, right? Like when we see how great a God we serve, when we see how great his love is, when we see how he is bent on caring for us, bent on constantly providing for his people, even when we're not aware of it. When we see his love, how could that not move us to be a praying people? To lay our needs at his feet. To come to him with all of our concerns. Essentially, every act of prayer is truly at its core a declaration of trust in God, right? 
I mean, anytime you ask somebody else for help, it's saying, what you're implicitly saying is, I am insufficient. You seem more sufficient. Can you help me? You are making an implicit declaration every time you ask somebody else for help that I can't do something and I need you. And it is the same with our God. Every time we pray, it is an act, a declaration of trust, saying that, God, apart from you, I can do nothing. But then also, right, if, if, if every act of God's provision to us is a testimony of his immense love and his immense care for us, if everything that happens to us in our lives is from God's powerful providence, then we as God's people have every reason to praise God with unceasing thankfulness. We of all people have the most to be thankful for. Every breath that you take is given to you by a God who lovingly gives you that breath. Right? In every and in all scenarios, God has our lives in his hands, so then in every and all scenarios, we have reason to worship him with thankful and praiseful hearts. A way to assess our trust in God is, do I pray? Do I bring my concerns to him? And is my life one of thankfulness? Both of those are intense marks of trust. So we've seen God's faithful provision here is constant and caring, and trust in response to that looks like prayer and worship. But we still have one more character to look at, and we're going to see God's providence take on a a little bit of a different shade, and trust take on another nuance as well. So we move on, and we get to verse uh, 34. Sorry, 29. And this section goes all the way to verse 67. And so for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all these verses. I would encourage you to do so. But what happens in verses 29 through 49, and after 49 we're going to pick up and start reading. What happens in these verses, though, is so Rebecca, she goes home and tells her family what has happened. And specifically, we're then introduced to Rebecca's family. And then even more specifically, we're introduced to her brother Laban, who then invites Abraham's servant over to eat and to spend the night with them. And then a majority of this section focuses on Abraham's servant retelling everything that we've just read up to this point to Rebecca's family. But there's a difference in the way that he tells the story. He, he doesn't lie or anything. But in his retelling, he specifically hones in on God's provision. And basically what he's trying to do is let Rebecca's family know Beyond a shadow of a doubt, God has worked this and he has called Rebecca to be Isaac's wife. The question then becomes, as Rebecca's family hears this testimony of God's faithfulness, how are they going to respond to it? Are they going to give their blessing? How will Laban and family respond to the testimony of God's faithful provision? Will they trust God with Rebecca and the unknown that's set before them? And this, in essence, reveals the last thing that we see about God's provision in our text today. We've seen that God's provision, it is caring, it is constant, 
And we also saw that in the beginning, God is tenaciously set on providing for us, right? It gives us confidence. So it's confident. It gives us confidence. God's caring for us. God is, oh man, I'm forgetting the other one. Help me out, guys. God's gives us confidence. It's caring and it's constant. I'm sorry. Lots of C's. The, the, the last thing is that it's challenging. Right? When, when God's providence here, God's provision for his people, it actually calls people to respond and do something. When you hear of God's provision and his faithfulness, right? when you hear the gospel, for example, it's not like reading information out of an encyclopedia. When you hear the testimony of God's faithfulness, it's like reading summons from a king. You can't not respond. And indifference is a response. You have to do something with the testimony of God's provision. You either trust the king or you reject him. So now we get to verse 50, which is this. Then Laban and Bethuel, that's Rebekah's father, answered. So we're going to see how, how they respond to the testimony of God's faithful provision. They say, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So we see Laban and, and his family's response is initially positive. God has spoken. I believe it. That's enough. But then the next morning, we see things change. Now we get to verse 54. It says this. The next morning, they wake up. And... He and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. And when they rose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother, so now Laban, and his mother said, Let the young woman remain. Let Rebekah stay here for a while. At least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord is prospering my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. So whereas a few verses before, Laban and his family were saying, God said it, that's great, Rebecca's going to go. Now, he's changing it up a little bit. Now, he's saying, well, I mean, like, maybe she could stay a little bit longer. And, and, and the idea here, implicit, is that this could just kind of keep happening. If you know anything about Laban later in Genesis, he does this again. So, now, they turn to Rebecca. We're going to see they turn to Rebecca and ask her what she wants. So now it's not Laban, but Rebecca who is challenged. She's challenged. She, she herself is going to have to decide how to respond to God and his faithfulness. Will she step out and trust him? Verse 57. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. And so they sent Rebecca. Uh, so they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Bir Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward the evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. And she said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. 
She took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So how does Rebekah respond to this challenge that she's faced with? How does she respond to the call of God's word upon her? And we see that she responds just like her father-in-law did, Abraham, back in Genesis 12. When God called him and said, go to a land unknown, to a place that I'll show you, and I'm going to bless you and make a nation out of you. God was giving him these, prov- these promises, saying, I'm going to provide for you. Abraham simply went. And here we, say, we see Rebecca says three words, I will go. And she goes. Important to see here is the fact that Rebecca in our text literally has had zero interactions with God. She has almost nothing to go on except a spoken testimony from the servant of God's faithfulness. And yet, unlike Laban, who counts the cost and maybe thinks it's too high, Rebecca, she steps out in faith. She trusts that God, who she hears provides, will take care of her. We see in our text that this even leads to her being blessed in verse 60. So we learn that God's providence, his faithful provision challenges us and the trust-filled response to that, well, trust here is exclusive, right? It holds on to God and it forsakes other things. And I think as we think about this, I mean, this really is the essence of the Christian life, isn't it? God does not call us through the, doesn't God call us through the gospel to step out in faith and bank our whole life, everything that we are, our future and our hope on his word, on his faithful testimony to us that he will provide for us? The point is, is that this text ends reminding us that how we begin as Christians Trusting God's word is how we keep on going as Christians. And while many of us have God's past provisions to look on for confidence, to, to trust him for the future, and while many of us also have present provisions and answered prayers to remind us that God is constantly working to care for us, all of us here this morning have God's word, the testimony of his faithfulness to his people, that we might be challenged by it, to respond with exclusive trust to God. When I was trying to decide to go where to college, to, to, trying to decide where to go for college, um, I was pretty bent out of shape. And it was only much later did I realize that my friend, what he told me, I just needed to calm down and make a decision and trust God, was right. God in his loving kindness did not tell me where to go to college. I had to decide. I never heard a booming voice from heaven telling me what to do, as much as I longed for that. But I can say, looking back, that if I didn't go to a Bible college in Europe, I wouldn't have never have, I, I wouldn't have met my wife, Emily. No, I didn't bring 10 camels. I wouldn't have met Emily. If we had never met in Europe, we would never have gone to Croatia. If we had never gone to Croatia, I wouldn't have been put in a position to move here in 2020 and today be standing before you telling you stories of God's faithful provision. 
Brothers and sisters, though we live in and are faced with a certain level of uncertainty, something that God's word tells us this morning, something that God's word makes abundantly clear to us, is that God faithfully provides for his people. And so we should be people who trust him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are God who cares, who provides for us, who's constantly doing that, who challenges us, but then also gives us confidence for us to trust you more. Help us to be people that pray, that worship, that are actively obedient, and that shun idols that we might hold to you more steadfastly. We set our eyes on you this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.